In order to understand chapter 3 of Philippians and beyond, you must understand what was going on in the early church and have a firm grasp. It's vital to know that for this reason. What went on then is going on now. It's the same stuff. It's the same, it's, it's packaged differently, but it's the same false teaching. And it, it is encompassed in this statement. It is fully grace that saves us by no effort of our own. That's part one. But this teaching has infiltrated into part two. In order to grow in grace, no effort is to be exacted toward that. What was all grace at the beginning is all grace till he returns. Therein is the sticking point. If you're coming from a different church background, if you listen carefully to the intricacies of what we're teaching, we are teaching that by no spiritual discipline of your own can you advance any further. That pedigrees and talents and abilities mean absolutely nothing for spiritual growth. Now let me tell you what was going on. Let me try to lay it out briefly for you. In the early church, which was predominantly Jewish, a phenomenon began to occur that upset the Jewish church, the Jewish Christian church. Uh, it started in the house of Cornelius by the hand of Peter, the apostle. It continued on in the city of Antioch of Syria. And it was, can you imagine, the Gentiles being saved. It sent such ripples and incredible backlash in the Jewish church that it was a long, it was hundreds of years before the eventual rift of Jew and Gentile believers ever began to be any kind of healed and never really was. This is the, this is the rub. People don't leave their religion quickly, especially a religion of Judaism that you were raised, this is the way you find God. So Jesus appears on the scene claiming himself to be the Messiah of the Jews and the Gentiles also. And as he preaches and as he ministers, an amazing thing happens. People get saved by grace. And then the Jews in the early church wanted to continue to embrace the Judaistic practices. At least some of them. And what they were teaching as they went around to the churches in uh, the New Testament times, and they followed, P they followed Paul everywhere he went, causing trouble and stirring it up within the church. They came behind and said, fine, you're saved. But in order for you to be truly saved, you must become in part Jewish. You must be circumcised for you males. And you females, you must come under the covenants and practices of Judaism itself. Paul's uh, response was, oh no, no. God has begun a new work in that the Gentiles, along with the Jews, it's all by grace. 
and therein was the rub. Now, how does that translate to today? Well, we are told by some corners of Christianity that you've got to be a member of their church to be saved. Church of Christ teaches that, at least some of them. If you're not baptized by a Church of Christ preacher, you're going to hell. Whatever I did up there at the baptismal pool with you didn't do a lick of good. That's some Church of Christ teaching. There are churches who teach if you're not a part of our circles that you're not in the echelon of Christianity. There are many that teach now that you're saved in order to grow and they pull out their list, however long and difficult it is. Christians buy into it because we tend to be filled with pride, and if we can add something to our walk with Christ and feel good about what we're doing, by all means, let's just go for it. But the offense of the cross is this. You can't save yourself. You're so wickedly sinful, you can't even find your way back to God. In fact, you're so sinful, you didn't even move first. God had to move toward you. You were so sinful. Amen. Now that we're saved, the flesh that's still in us is just as wicked as it always was. Paul said, as you have received the Lord Jesus by faith, so now walk ye in him. William Newell, and I'm getting to, you, got, you have to understand what's going on here, or you won't understand chapter 3 of Philippians. William Newell, in his commentary on Romans, has one of the best writings on the essence of grace. I won't read it all to you. It's quite extensive, but I'll read some. The nature of grace, William Newell says, is this. Grace is God acting freely according to his own nature as love, with no promises or obligations to fill, acting, of course, righteously in view of the cross. Grace, therefore, is uncaused by the recipient. Its cause lies wholly in the giver, in God. God moved toward you in grace, not by anything that we did. Grace is always sovereign. Having no debts to pay or fulfilled conditions on man's part to wait for, it can act toward whom and to whom it pleases. It can and does often place the worst deservers in the highest favor. Grace cannot act where there is Grace cannot act where there is either, either desert, I deserve this, or ability. Grace does not help. It is absolute. It does all. There is no cause in the creature why grace should be shown. The creature must be brought off, must be brought off from trying to give cause to God for his grace. And then he goes on in a chapter entitled The Proper Attitude of Man Under Grace. And it's this. To believe and to consent to be loved while unworthy is the great secret. To refuse to make resolutions. I'm reading a chapter in Screwtape Letters where Screwtape is concerned about the patient and he writes to Wormwood, the demon, working with the Christian who is the patient, and he writes this, I'm a little concerned that the patient has refused to make any other resolutions to be good. Any other promises to, to grow, but has utterly fallen upon God for his hourly need. 
he writes to Wormwood, this is not good. <laughs> Proper attitude of man under grace is to refuse to make resolutions and to vows, for that is to trust in the flesh. To expect to be blessed, though realizing more and more your lack of worth. To testify of God's goodness at all times. To be certain of God's future favor, yet to be ever more tender and conscious toward him. To rely on God's chastening hand as a mark of his kindness. The man under grace, if like Paul, has no burdens regarding himself, but many about others. And then I'll read you this last small section that talks about things that gracious souls discover. William Newell writes this. To be better off, to hope to be better, is to fail to see yourself in Christ alone. Let me read that again. To hope to be better as a Christian is to fail to see yourself in Christ only. To be disappointed with yourself, probably this is my favorite. To be disappointed with yourself is to have believed in yourself. To be discouraged is unbelief as to God's purpose and plan of blessing you. To be proud is to be blind, for we have no standing before God in ourselves. The lack of divine blessing, therefore, comes from unbelief, not from our failure of devotion. This is beautiful writing, the best I've ever read on the topic of grace, and that's a small section I'll read one more. I can't help it. <laughs> to preach, this is, this, is, this is where we land on Philippians 3. To preach devotion first. In other words, our efforts. To preach devotion first and blessing as a result second is to reverse God's order and preach law, not grace. The law made man's blessing depend on his devotion. Grace confers undeserved, unconditional blessing. Our devotion may follow, it may follow, but it does not always do so in proper measure. Good stuff. I often think of the one axiom, to be disappointed in yourself is to have trusted that you could actually do it. That tells me that Christians should never be disappointed in themselves. They should never trust. Enter chapter 3 of the book of Philippians. Look at it with me. Actually, the first sentence in verse 1 is the ending of the letter. Did you know that? It's it. It's when the preacher put his pen down. It says, finally, brothers, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord, period. Send the letter, stamp it, post it, send it with the man, click the button, send the email, it's done. But then as most preachers do, when they say it's done, it's really not done. Because they get another thought. And as he sat there looking at the end of his letter, he thought, I can't help it, man, I've got to write something else. And so in chapter 3, verse 1, part B, notice it, to write the same things to you 
is no trouble to me and it is safe to you. What he's going to say to them, he has said before in previous correspondence. You are aware there were a lot of correspondence between Paul and his churches. We only have a collection of them here in the New Testament. He had written this before to them. So he's sitting there thinking, should I write it again? Should I write it again? Should I say it one more time to these Christians? And he answers, yes, I should. You see his point? He loves them so much. It's no problem for him to repeat himself. No matter how many times he had to say it, he'll say it. Um, Caleb's grandfather was a preacher. And uh, he told uh, his son Leon, which is Caleb's father, uh, a story of him and a deacon out in Tallahassee when he preached at a church there for many years. The deacon came to his Caleb's grandfather and said, you know, you've preached that sermon three times this year. Do you have not, you don't have any other text to preach on? You little, you know, he said, when you, and Caleb's grandfather turned to him and, and to the deacon and said, when you get the sermon, I'll quit preaching it. <laughs> when you finally get it, I'll stop it. Paul says, I'll say it again. I'll repeat this because it's no problem to repeat it and it's good for you. So what does he say that he said before? Look at verse 2. This has nothing to do with you fans of the Gators at all. So some of you, you take this verse <laughs> and misappropriate Scripture and take it out of context. It has nothing to do with that at all. I know some of you, have, people twist the Bible. You know that. <laughs> Satan did it. So look at verse 2. Look out, watch for dogs. Okay, some of you are really enjoying that. Verse 2, watch out for dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Well, who in the world is he talking about? He's talking about those Jewish Christians, believers in Christ that are part of the Jewish church that are trying to make the Gentiles Jews, proselyte Jews. This caused such a rift in the church. Do you, do you know for the first couple hundred years that the church, the Gentile church, was, had a racial problem with, had, with the Jews? Do, do you know Augustine and his eschatology wouldn't claim any of the promises of Israel because the church had replaced Israel, which isn't true. No one's replaced the nation of Israel, but the hatred by even a great man like Augustine and all the early theologians toward the Jews was born out of this. The persecution that the church experienced for a couple hundred years came from the hand of the Jews. And sometimes these Jewish believers. Well, why, why would he say dogs? That's what Jewish believers, or at least Jews, called Gentiles. The reason a dog was kind of unclean to the Jews is because the dog will eat anything. And they do, pretty much. Unless the cheese goes bad, they'll eat just about every, anything. Okay? My father-in-law was tickled because he, he pulled a little uh, kumquat off the thing and Oscar ate it. He got tickled at that. They eat anything. So to a Jew who has a strict dietary restrictions, you know, kosher, the whole Jewish thing, they pride themselves, we don't eat this and we don't eat that. Well, a dog will come along and eat anything. So they're looking at a dog thinking, well, that's like the Gentiles they'll eat anything they're dogs you see that 
So Paul kind of whips it around and goes, let me talk about who the real dog is. Because these Jewish believers will swallow the lie and eat anything spiritually to say that you have to do something to be saved or do something to grow. You see the, you see the, the irony there? Notice how he describes them. Look out for the evildoers. Anybody who preaches law, I'm not going to say is an evildoer. Many people, many Christians preach law because they're ignorant of grace. They haven't come to the place where they understand all that. But think what it does to believers. Think what it did to you for all those years, placing you in bondage. I mean, I lived a lot of years burdened down with my sin when my sin was all gone. Burdened with a heavy responsibility to save every individual in the entire world that was going to hell. I carried upon my weight the responsibility of my personal growth. And if I was failing as a... This, this, this puts people in bondage. Amen. Paul describes this as evil doing. Notice what he calls them. Those who mutilate the flesh. That is a reference to circumcision. He's going to whip that around in a second. Look at verse 3. Who's the circumcision? We are the circumcision. He's not talking about physical circumcision. It's a play on words. They're the ones who care about the physical outside stuff. Physical adherence to their religion. It went way beyond circumcision. It went beyond control. It went beyond religion. It went into a realm that they were, they were just they were manipulating. And it didn't probably hurt that they wanted the offerings, too. They wanted to pull them in. They're mutilators of the flesh. Paul said, we are the true circumcision. Now, some of you battle with this, with this concept of circumcision because it's played back and forth between that which is physical circumcision and that which is spiritual circumcision. Now, he's going to reference it, I think, in just a minute. So let's read it and see what spiritual circumcision is. It says, we are the circumcision who worship, God, who worship by the Spirit of God. And we glory in Christ Jesus. Not ourselves, not our ability to live this Christian life, not like what can we can we just glory in Jesus Christ. And notice, how much confidence do we put in the flesh? Nothing. No confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the ability. Do you understand the difference? A man will get up and preach, let's preach about grace. And then he'll tell you a thousand things to do in the flesh, and you get confidence that you can do it. Paul said, no, no, no. We have no confidence that we can pull this off. We've long ago given it up. We glory in Jesus Christ who lives in a, within us. We worship by the Spirit of God, not the rules and regulations a man pours upon us. This circumcision that Paul mentions is the marked out those who are followers of God. Circumcision in a physical realm in the Old Testament marked a man for God. It was the Jewish thing to do that caused him to say, I'm a follower of God. No longer the physical is needed. Now the heart needs to be circumcised. Spiritual circumcision is a circumcision of the heart that occurred to you the moment you got saved. Amen. Tell you how it happened. 
When you were saved, you entered into Christ. Entering into Christ, you inherited all the history of Christ at the point when he cried out, it is finished. That's where it started. It didn't start when he walked and he did miracles. That was his life lived out. When he went to the cross to pay for our sins, it was vicarious in nature. In other words, it was on my account because I couldn't do that. He did it for me. I couldn't be in him because I was still apart from him. But when he died and that payment was nailed to the cross and that blood was, he said, the payment is finished. At that point, we entered in. All the history from that very second beyond was our history with him. Now, if you're looking for a parallel, all the history that you've ever lived out is the history of one man, Adam. When we were born, we were in Adam. When he fell in the garden, his history became our history. We were in Adam when he sinned. Everybody follow me? So, being in Adam, we inherited the sin nature. Just born with it. And then we get born again, and now we have God's nature living within us. The same hist- now our history is no longer based in Adam anymore. It's done. By the grace of God, our history starts when it's finished. So when he died, you died. Sin did not die on the cross. Sin lost its victory on the cross. But the flesh is still in us. I died in relation to sin. My heart was cut, crucified, cut away, circumcised, separated from sin. Everybody follow me? So when sin comes knocking to the Christian, he doesn't follow a set of devotions and regulations to keep it away, memorizing verses, praying harder, doing more, being involved in church, giving to the poor, singing praise. Some people use praise and worship as a, sense, a, sense, a type of intoxicating moment. You know? But just let somebody cut you off in traffic and find out how much that intoxication lasts. You'll turn that praise and worship music off because that's not what you want to hear because you're mad and you want to be mad. does nothing for you. You come into a church service and people are worshiping the Lord within the, and there's this high heart spirit and, 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 and you cannot enter in because the flesh, you're, you're mad about something with someone or a circumstance. Maybe you're mad at God. And no matter how much we worship in this place, you're not entering it into a thing for you hand out a piece of bread at a food line, and you just think those people just need to go get a job. It can sneak in. Flesh, 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 sin. The victory is the circumcision of Christ upon the heart where you view yourself as separate from that, and it has no authority in your life, no place. So when he died, you died. When he was buried, you were buried. All your history is gone. When he rose again, you rose with him. And the newness of life is now in you. That is spiritual circumcision. God did that work in your heart. Now you need to know it first. Then you need to believe and rest in it. Trust it. This is victory. This is the essence of victory. Victory is not swallowing hard, swallowing your pride and Victory is not suppressing what's in you. Victory is facing it, laughing at it, and saying, I am victorious over that. 
Okay, I've I've gone too far with that. Look at verse 3. We are the circumcision who worship God. We put no confidence in the flesh. One of the greatest verses, statements Paul makes. But he says, look, if you Jewish Christians want to match up, let's just match up. Let's just get in the lock, you know, let's just match up. He said, look, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason to confidence for confidence in the flesh, <laughs> I got more. You guys are lightweights compared to where I'm at with this stuff. Notice his, his resume. He says, we'll, we'll camp a few minutes on each one. First of all, I was circumcised the eighth day. That was a Jewish rite. I entered the Jewish economy at that time. I was circumcised. You want to talk about circumcised? I was circumcised the eighth day when you're supposed to be. Notice he says, of the people of Israel. Uh, I was not a proselyte. I was born into this thing. Of the tribe of Benjamin. That's a special tribe. Uh, It's one of the two tribes that made up Judah in the south. Uh, Saul was found out of the tribe of Benjamin. Maybe Paul was named after Saul. Benjamin was the only son of Israel that was born in the promised land. It was a high and lofty tribe. Notice the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. What did that mean? That meant I'm a Hebrew who speaks Hebrew. I speak Aramaic fluently. I am a Hebrew that can meet in the synagogue and chew it out with the best of them. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews themselves. A lot of Hebrews, a lot of Jews could not speak Aramaic. They spoke Greek, but not Paul. In fact, when Paul was interrupted in one of those times where he was arrested, he stood on the balcony over that huge crowd and he began to speak impromptu Hebrew, which is very difficult to do. I can, I, can, I, can, I can ride in there and I can hang with the best Hebrew. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law, I am a Pharisee. A Pharisee was exact in keeping the law. Josephus estimates there was only 6,000 Pharisees in the land of Israel at the time of Christ. In the land of millions of Jews, only 6,000 were Pharisees. They kept the the iota of every intricacy of the law. The word Pharisee means separated ones. This guy was high echelon of all this leadership. They wanted to boast. Well, there he goes. A Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. I had so much false zeal for God that I killed I stood by while Stephen was martyred. I went after them. You talk about Jewish zeal. I'm the poster child. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. That's not boasting. That's just an accurate statement. I kept every line and precept. Check it off, man. Day and night, I was there. I filled religion to the hilt. I was it. 
most believe Paul was on his way to, to leading the nation, sitting at the feet of Gamaliel, the great rabbi. We'll end with this. Look at verse 7. But whatever I gained, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Everything that I attained when I met Jesus melted away like an ice cube in the Sahara Desert. It was gone, sucked into the sand. It was, it was nothing. Proud of my heritage, my pedigrees, my ability. Religion-wise, I was at the top of the game. I could, have had, I could have led the nation of Israel. And when I met Jesus, all that became nothing to me. All religion just went out the curb for the excellency of knowing Christ. I guess I can't stop. It says, notice, if indeed I count everything as loss because of the surpassing not worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. And I really think they're just about rubbish when I'm looking at them. I've lost all prestige. I've lost all power. I've lost all reputation. I am a hated man. I am a hunted man. And I don't care because I've met a Savior so beautiful and so wonderful who saved me so completely I could take the praise of men and just throw it in the city garbage heap. Who cares? He is so wonderful to my soul. He meets a need that no religion can. Isn't that beautiful? Uh, I'm, I'm working out a chapter called The People of the Wood. I'm done with the narrative, and I began the explanation of that chapter. The People of the Wood are kind of a picture of the present gospel that tells me I can be healed of all my diseases. And that, that God really, his main concern is my happiness and my contentment and my bank account. And you've, you, you can put in the blanks. You, you've heard it before. In the opening chapter, this is what I write. That if that was true, then God owes an apology to the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles and the martyrs of the early church if only they had known this profound teaching, they could have avoided much suffering. 